we're excited to invite Rabbi Morty Friedman, one of the Ram at the Yeshiva, to discuss some of his favorite ideas on the Passover Haggadah. Rav Morty, why don't you begin, share with us some of your Torah, like your favorite vort, or favorite idea about the Passover Haggadah. Great, thank you so much, Rav Berman. I'm excited to share with you. I actually want to start off with a, a very quick experience from actually this past year. Now, one of the big questions when we sit down at the Seder is how do we prepare for the Seder experience? And how do we prepare to make it meaningful for the people that are there? Now, I heard two different drashot from two different rabbis in two different cities last year. And the contrast between them was striking and really affected me about how I think about the types of varts and ideas to talk about at the Seder. Do you want to say which rabbis? Or uh, definitely not. Okay. But if anyone knows me, you can guess which two cities these probably came from. The first rabbi got up and he said, which mitzvah is the most important mitzvah of the Seder? And I suppose I would have, you know, Shmot Yibet is pretty clear about mitzvot. And he said, that's not it. The mitzvah is not from Shmot Yudbet, it's not from Parshat Bo, it's not from the biblical discussion of what Pesach should be. It's actually from a couple of prakim later in the Aserat HaDibrot. And the mitzvah is, Well, that's kind of a startling... Totally startling. I might have been looking at a sefer at the time, and I looked up and I said, I'm sorry, what? And he said, do you know what the mitzvah, the biggest and most important mitzvah is? For the children to learn, to sit straight, sit at the Seder, listen, don't talk, don't leave, try to pay attention, and let the adults fulfill the mitzvah of learning Torah on the night of the Seder. Does this rabbi have children? Yes, he does. Might say he potentially no longer has that job. And I sat there and I was just being horrified. And he said, look at the Seder. Think about the stories of the Seder. Right? We have the stories of the rabbis spending all night learning. The students, by the way, weren't even there because they had to wake them up in the morning and say, hey, you guys, Mashal Krish, Mashal Shacharit. You got to wake up. They weren't even there. This is the night of the ultimate Talmud Torah. And I sat there saying to myself, you know, all the times I, I heard ideas of Soloveitchik about the myths of Talmud Torah, then I just say there, and Baruch HaMakom is really Birchat Torah. But that's just, wow. Meaning this to me was shocking. The Seder is about Talmud Torah, which by the way is a beautiful idea. But how about everyone else at the Seder? It's also interesting because the Rambam, when he starts up Hilchot Talmud Torah, he discusses teaching children and the obligation about children, not your own obligation to learn. So it's kind of ironic. 100%. 100%. So I'm not going to flip it now to the other rabbi. The other rabbi gets up. And it was literally like one week after the other. And the rabbi gets up and he says, Dear parents, I would like you to know that the mitzvah of the Haggadah is v'higadat al-bincha. What does that mean, higadat al-bincha? It means talk to your kids. It means aim it at the children at the table. The mitzvah is not about you. You can learn before. You can learn when the kids go to sleep. But focus the night of the Seder on you. And to me, the contrast between the two basically asks the question, what is the Seder about? Who is the Seder for? And how do we tailor our Leil HaSeder experience around the people that we're with? And something tells me we've all been to different types of Sadar. And it could be that some of us in our yeshiva experiences were in a Seder with only yeshiva people. And it could be that we've been in Sadarim with lots of children. And it could be some Sadarim have to be different. A good friend of mine, we had a Seder when both uh, our wives were pregnant. It was oh. six of us pregnant with our first children. 
So we were up like to four in the morning or something. It was the four of us and one other guest and a chayal who happened to be in the area. So that happens once in a lifetime that you have maybe such a such a seder. But you have kids, right? How many kids do you have? Three kids. My oldest is uh, 18 and the youngest is nine, which means the challenge for me is how do we speak to the 18-year-old at the same time speaking to the nine-year-old? Do we take turns? Do we try to integrate? And my wife's family, as many of you know, is Moroccans and Sephardim never have Seder by themselves. I mean, COVID was the only time. And even then, we illegally kind of had a joint Seder with my sister-in-law, who also lives in Efrat. But how do you plan the Seder? And I think planning is the most important thing. And for that reason, really, our shakoch for putting this together. Because when we think about what we're talking about, the types of questions we're asking, the types of ideas we're sharing, then we need to ask who's at the Seder, who's my audience, my target audience, and how do I address them? So I'll start with that. When I think about how we address the people in the room, what I always try to think about is how do we make the Seder personal? What do I mean by that? What is the mitzvah of telling the story of Sibri Yitzim so the Haggadah tells us very clearly, right? You need to see yourself as if you left Mitzrayim, right? And it continues, Not just them, not just our forefathers, but also us. So I want to share two different perspectives of what that means. Perspective number one, I could call it the Rambam, I could call it Rosalovechik. Rambam changes from Lerot to see to Leharot to demonstrate. We need to demonstrate we just came out of Egypt. What does that mean? It means we need to put ourselves into a time capsule and go back and really let everyone at the Seder feel what it was like to be in Mitzrayim. Right? The Drashot really kind of get us to think about what were the experiences they were going. And some of the Drashot are about the cruelty of the Egyptians about its effect, right? Uh, how it affected family life, how it affected children, how it affected religious life. But to really feel what it was like. And then the next piece is, what did it feel like to go to the Makot? What did it feel like to be victorious and to leave? And the goal of the Seder is to feel the way they felt. Rav Salavechik, when he talks about how Rambam describes the Leil HaSeder in Mishnah Torah, for Rav Salavechik, it's Rambam almost forgets that uh, we're writing this Haggadah hundreds of thousands of years later. And our goal is to recreate the past, which means looking around the table and helping everyone remember. Well, they can't really remember because they weren't there. So let's create those memories. Let's think about what that would mean. Let's think about what it would be like. And for some people, it could be analyzing the Haggadah, the Chumash, Chazal, the Droshot. The Haggadah is actually filled with all of them. But goal number one is, you know, what many people do. Let's have a minag of dressing up like them telling a story. Actually. Is that what you do? Do you guys dress up? My brother-in-law religiously does. And he'll put on a sack, he'll put on something with a robe, and I'll start telling a story for the kids. And it's very powerful, even though the older kids have already seen it before and perhaps are, are, are giggling a little. But for the younger kids, it's, oh my God, you don't what just happened. I just witnessed the Makot. We're about to go. Let's go, everybody. Get up. And there are parts of the Seder that like, in the Rambam Seder and in the Moroccan Seder, Bivhilu is actually the way you begin the Seder before Halachmania. It means, yeah, let's go, let's go. Frantically, we need to go. You need to feel the chipazon, the the okay, it's happening, it's time to go. You need to feel it in the air. That's part of the Seder experience. And therefore, goal number one 
is to learn the Haggadah, to try to recreate what happened, and to let everybody have a visualization in their head. Like, let's make this visual learning. You know, put stuff on the table, act things out, dress up, tell stories, as if you were there, to help everyone understand what we were just saved from. And that when we get up to Hallel, we're all saying Hallel because it's as if I, right, Kilo, I just got saved. So I would say Seder experience number one is going to be trying to recreate. That's the Rav and that's the Rambam. But my personal favorite is the Abarbanel. And uh, Rabbi Berman, we were actually talking about the Haggadah of the Abarbanel yesterday. Yeah, the Abarbanel, of course, was a person who actually did flee. The Abarbanel, exactly. In other words, 1492, him, his entire society, his family all ran away from the expulsion of Spain. But the truth is that the Abarbanel says that's what Pesach is actually about. I'm going to read you a small little passage. Every single Jew has experienced the diaspora of Mitzrayim. Every Jew has undergone their own Yitziat Mitzrayim. Every Jew has undergone their own enslavement. Just like they did in Mitzrayim. And he has a crazy line. There's no way you've survived Galut without going through your own paro, your own dictator, your own punishment. And just like God saved us then, God has saved all of us, or hopefully God will save all of us. And the Abarbanel opens up a totally new vista to what the Seder is about. It's connecting your personal, communal, and national moments times of crisis, times of enslavement, times of deliverance and redemption to the Seder. And the Abarbanel, and by the way, he's not, not only the Abarbanel, the Sefer Rokeach of Elazar Romaiza in the 12th century, early 13th century, in a number of places says, and this reminds me of the pogrom that happened here, and this is how we were saved. Because the goal of the Seder isn't just to talk about the past, but it's to show how the Yitzhak Mitzrayim, you know, there's a reason it's so fundamental in our belief that we talk about it in everywhere and everything. Because that's the cycle of life. Trouble happens and God saves us. And the Seder and the challenge of the Seder is how do I see that in my life? How do I see it in my personal life? My family's life. Okay, I grew up in a, a Seder with, with my grandfather. Almost every year, my grandfather, born in, in Nazi Germany, every year, Points where, in all honesty, we would like, you know, you could snap and you would know exactly when he was going to say it and pretty much what he was going to say. Wait, this was in Teaneck? In Teaneck, yeah. As a youth in Teaneck. So my grandfather was from Fairlawn, but originally from Germany. And he would look at something. He'd be like, Paro, this reminds me of the following. And I remember Kristallnacht. And I remember what my family felt like. And I think about the following. And then he would talk about, uh, you know, all sorts of his own redemption. Uh, He happened to have been spared before the Holocaust, his parents sent him out after Kristallnacht. But he would always see the Haggadah through the lens of the Holocaust. And I wish I could share the emotion, the anger, and sometimes the glee of, of delight in his eyes when he would talk about it. And that, says the Barbanel, is exactly what you're supposed to do. How is your story or your family's story connected to the Seder? This is the paradigm for everything the paradigm for Jewish history, the paradigm of our own lives. I remember when, uh, I suppose I have to use this phrase for all students who know me, when I was at Penn, <laughs> um, 
So we had a presentation by Professor David Stern. Professor David Stern's a tremendous academic scholar of so many things. I'm actually not even sure what his real field is. He gave a talk on the Haggadah, and he brought in, I don't know, 50 different types of Haggadot that have nothing to do with rabbinic Torah. And his point was... Like, sorry, what, what, what examples? He would bring in examples of kibbutzim, non-religious kibbutzim in Israel, Hashomer Tzair, that created a Haggadah that showed their experiences of leaving Europe and coming to Israel. He would give examples from in communist Russia, post-Nazi Holocaust examples. You know, one of his favorites and one that you can actually watch online, I believe it's 1967, Arthur Waskow and his The Freedom Seder. The Freedom Seder, this is someone who marched with Martin Luther King, and he created a Seder which was filled with, uh, you know, the ideas of the civil rights. Because for him and for the Abarbanel, this is how God relates to B'nai Israel and to the world. Um, I was just reading, uh, I think, uh, you put out this new book, Proclaim Liberty Throughout the Land, which is the drashot, the sermons that were given in various, uh, across early America and their biblical origins. And the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, of England being Paro. And, it's an interesting one. Yeah. Jonathan Sarna quotes this one in his um, book on American Judaism, where someone, a rabbi in the South, used Yitzhak Mitzrayim as an example of why the South should secede oh. from the North. I guess the issue, the irony of slavery, did not quite descend upon this particular rabbi. But uh, yeah, people... Um, can use those in quite creative ways. Amazing. I, I would say, there, for example, even if we go personal Haggadot, there are AA Haggadahs showing how our own personal redemption from our own enslavement acts out in the Haggadah. And obviously the four questions or the four sons are a little bit different, but they're all the same questions. And that the Haggadah is meant as a, a paradigm of trouble, personal crisis, national crisis, redemption. There's a Gush Katif Haggadah. There are Ethiopian Haggadot of relating to the, each of their experiences. And therefore, my first and most important message, I think, for the Haggadah is how do I make the Haggadah experience personal? Can I ask you a, a question connected to that? What Haggadah do you use at the Seder? Uh, at the Seder. The we truth, use a Haggadah. Yeah. We have like a million Haggadot that are like the prep. And most of them put them nearby to look up stuff. But our main... Haggadah is a blank one. One you has a few little pictures here and there, but everyone's on the same page. And we have like you know we. I mean, obviously, I grew up. I don't know if you grew up with the Maxwell House Haggadah. I actually grew up with a significant collection of Maxwell House Haggadot. I still have some of the new new ones with new pictures. I miss the old ones, but that's what we use. Right, Ebner was here last time talking about how he uses the Goldsmith Haggadah. But what do you use at your center? So I'll distinguish between the first half of my life and the second half, perhaps. In all the Sedarim we had growing up in Teaneck, New Jersey, we had this, I, I don't know if it was the Maxwell, it was brown, yellow, beige with a star on the front. Perhaps one of the schools had given it out and we had an excess copies. And you're right, everyone can be on the same page literally and figuratively, but it's the prep ones. In other words, when I was in Yeshiva, there was a minhag I remember being told. I don't know whose minhag it is. I've seen it quoted. And that is every year you buy a new Haggadah. Um, and hopefully my wife's not listening, but uh, we have a lot of Haggadahs at home, and my shelf of the Haggadahs has a shelf behind the shelf and a shelf on top of the shelf. And every year it grows because there are always different perspectives. 
that isn't necessarily the Haggadot that I'm bringing into the Seder. Because for me, the Seder is about who's there. And uh, certainly in the later part of my, more recent parts of my life, I don't remember a Seder, except for COVID, with under 40 people, including lots of kids and adults and all ranges of religious observances, which brings along um, its own challenges, its own opportunities. So how did you, at those huge, I mean, I know the Siddharm that I grew up with, which were very large, like 25, 30, 50 members. So we would often go round robin and reading, Rabbi Jose said, you know, and, you know, it was a big deal that the few people who could read in Hebrew would read a little piece in Hebrew, not we understood it, but we read it in Hebrew. What do you do with these 40-person seders? What do you do? Uh, the truth is we have the opposite problem. Uh, these 40-person Israelis say Siddharm, everyone reads. Children, adults, everyone, but they read so quickly. <laughs> and sometimes, if we don't all have the same pagination, same paragraph markers, some people fly. So at some point, it's a little bit of a you know tug of war of wait, someone wants to say something, someone wants to ask. You know, we have found actually that again, also because we have a mix of religious and, and less religious, that some people are more interested in the experiential, more ritual parts, and some people are interested in talking, debating, discussing. And it could be that sometimes maybe that's what Shulchan Aruch is for, or that's what certain downtimes are for, where some people are doing one thing and those that are interested in talking do another. I don't know that we've had a perfect medium, or sometimes we've asked people to share, but many times it's really kind of divide and conquer. But think about Shulchan Orech. Like, like you're eating. Now, it's one of the simanim. And officially, it's part of the Lela Seir. Now, I grew up where that was a, I don't know, it was a less than important part. Meaning, the goal is matzah and maror, and let's be honest, after you eat two kazetim with matzah, and then, and then korech, like, like, you're stuffed! Who can eat? I remember we, we always joke at, uh, you know, my mother would, would make soup for the second night, because who can eat by a second night of chag? And it was always like, you know, that wasn't the important part, because the important part was everything else. And I my, can't fathom how you second night of chag these days. <laughs> yes, yes, thank God for that. My mother-in-law, the highlight of the night, is eating. And I remember in the beginning, the first couple of years, I had a very difficult time because, you know, that's what Chag's about. This is Pesach. But the more I've gotten perhaps used to it, what is the eating, Shulchan Aruch? You are almost reenacting the current Pesach experience. This is the celebratory meal of the entire family coming together. And it's clear it's Pesach and it's clear why we're here. And maybe this is actually more pristine than the way that, that I had done until then, because we're celebrating with an amazing meal, multiple courses, ridiculous amount of meat, because it's Pesach and we were saved as the Jewish people. And the shift is, you know, there are different types of experiences, and it took me a while to appreciate this one. But the entire family getting together, 50 people eating meat, lezecher. I mean, I don't say Lezecher Karben Pesach, Lezecher Pesach. And then using the meal as the time to talk about Mitzrayim, as opposed to being bidieved, like, ah, I wish we could have done this before. But, I mean, that's the way Karbonat were done, right? You bring a Karbonat Oda, and then you talk about why you're doing it. And for us, a lot of the talking in the Torah sometimes happens then. And even though at first that we had a very difficult time with that, um, I've actually really begun to appreciate it. Another difficult time. So what do you do about getting out? I'm sure everyone listening wants to know. <laughs> this morning I gave an hour and a half share on getting out. Uh, I suppose discussion for a different time. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough. You say the most of the Torah pieces is done 
it, you guys do it when you're... I would say that many of it is done that way. And then it's done in smaller groups. And we've even done where we've done adults in one group or younger or older kids in one group. And then we've done more local or intensified things for younger kids. Or we might split and conquer. And it doesn't... I, I Baruch Hashem, I am not the only person involved in education and who's involved in Higadot Al-Bencha. And therefore you split. It's all about understanding the dynamics of the Seder and trying to maximize it. And, you know, just like no two fingerprints are the same, I imagine no two Siddharm are the same. You know, I want you to imagine your Seder now with your kids at a particular age. And in Eretz Hashem, what would that Seder look like in 10 years? Or what was it 10 years ago when your kids were 10 years old, 10 years younger? The Seder evolves. I, I assume, by the way, we evolve and our own approaches and thoughts towards Pesach evolve. Or which Haggadahs and Sfarim we're using to prepare evolve. The Seder has to evolve, which means we, the person preparing for the Seder, or, sorry, we need to prepare for the Seder. That is perhaps the most important message before the Seder. Prepare, but not just like what makes me feel good or what type of idea I like. But what type of idea is everyone else at the Seder going to like? And how do I engage them as well? And that is the Higarat al-Bincha. And that perhaps is why the Seder needs to be question and answer, Manashtana. You're not talking to yourself. You're not just regurgitating the same idea because it makes you feel like, I love this idea. I remember for years I had this Urchatz board that I loved. But it took me a long time to realize that most people at the table thought it was utterly and totally just boring and so what? I happen to still love it. It's all about Tomantara and Beta Megdash, but everyone else looked at me like I was crazy. Great. We need to think about what we're saying. We need to think about who we're saying it to. Can I skip to, let's say, the end of the Seder? Whatever you want. Yeah, so uh, one of the, I don't know, I'm not going to say underappreciated parts of the Seder, Although, sometimes we need to think about why it's there. The whole end of the Seder. Now we're used to this, I don't know, what is this Mirza stuff? Now some people love the end. It's sing-songy, and it's nice, and it makes you feel good. I assume in many places you're half falling asleep. And I'd also like to point out, in some places it doesn't exist. Right? If I open up Rambam's Haggadah, none of that exists. Oh, actually, a lot of our favorite songs, like Dayenu, don't exist in the Rambam Sagada. Now, the Rambam is very clear, right? The Rambam, when he says in the Parak Zion of Hilchacham and Tumatzah, what is the mitzvah? The mitzvah of the Torah, the Saper Benisim and Eflot, Shinasu Lavotainu, Bit Mitzrayim, on the 14th. Only on the 14th. So, for example, Kriyat Yamsuf doesn't get mentioned in the Rambam Sagada. And all those wonderful drashot, the mathematical ones, that uh, I still am perplexed why they made it to the Seder. This one has five makot, and then Ahayam was 10, and this one had 250, and this is 50, and this is 100. Rambam doesn't have any of that, because that's Kriyat Yamsu. That's crossing the... Like, and that's not part of the Seder experience of that night. But for us who don't have Rambam Sagada, our Seder experience, our Leil Seder experience, is actually much wider. In the entire end of the Haggadah, it's not just we were taken out, and then we sing Halal, but we now look back and we say, what about the future? What happens to the next redemption? And the entire part of Nirza is all thinking ahead to the future. It's all thinking about the next redemption. Perhaps Yitziat Mitzrayim has a paradigm to it. But they're all really, really important and deep songs about Mashiach, the future, and the past. I'll share with you one of my... Uh, my favorite uh, passages from the Chida. The Chida, in one of his many, many books called Chaim Sha'al, 
he's asked the following. Okay, we're going to go to the very end. The last part of the last piyut, the last liturgical poem is Chagadia. How about you? I love Chagadia. When I when I teach Aramaic, I love using Chagadia because those are words that you know and just you just don't know that you know the words. So the Chida is asked, and the Chida is Dafka, someone who traveled the world, and at the same time, it's a very important Svarti posek. The case was someone was making fun of the piyut of Chagadia and one little goat. What is that? So I'm imagining this is back somewhere in Turkey and Spain where they were uh, someone was making fun of the Ashkenazi minhag to say these funny nursery rhyme songs, and someone then was making fun of it, and someone else who was at that seder put the guy in chair. How dare you make fun of a beautiful Ashkenazi poem? And the question went to the Chida, is the Cherem good or not? Meaning, was he put in Cherem for a good reason? Or is it really as wild as it sounds? And the Chida writes back, HaChutzpah, how dare you make fun of what is Nahagu revolt alfei Yisrael b'arei polim ve'ashkenaz. Something that thousands and at this point millions of Ashkenazi Jews have always done. And Gedole Olam Kadishin El Yonim, and years and years of great Gedolim have done. And he talks about that he's heard so many different explanations for Chagadia and for all the other ones, and their origin is early and holy. And therefore, these aren't nursery rhymes. They're actually very important. And I would challenge everyone to look at all the stories at the end and to think about what could they mean and what should they mean. When I think of nursery rhymes, the truth is, I don't know, I've grown up on nursery rhymes. Occasionally we sing them. Some of them are silly. Some of them are nonsensical. Right, right. Why was Mary sitting on a what? I mean, you know, you know, Jack and Jill went up the hill. And some of them, the English is off, the grammar is off, like, you know, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. I think in, uh, I forgot the year, in my head, 1875, we put, there was a, a, a two-volume set put out called The Archaeology of Nursery Rhymes. And uh, the basic thesis was nursery rhymes were historically religiously motivated critiques or poems about all sorts of historical events. Assume that the words have been corrupted, some of them. And if we think about the context of all of them, they make so much sense. Old Mother Hubbard is a particular wife of a king, uh, a Catholic king of, of England who couldn't get divorced and she was in a, and there. And Mary Tudor has all sorts of vengeful, bloody, colorful instruments. And ashes to ashes, we all fall down is if you sneezed, you had the back of the plague and you're probably going to die. And they all work that way. And if we studied nursery rhymes, we would see they all have some sort of historical or religious, you know, message or polemic. And the same thing is true of liturgical poems on our side and Chagadia being one of them. And therefore, there are many, many wonderful explanations of Chagadia, how they address Emuna, right? There's all sorts of forces in the world, but God is stronger than all of them. We may them like that, but it's not just that. There are a lot of evil forces in the world that have killed us, the Jews. But don't worry, one day they too will fall, which is exactly part of the message of Pesach Haggadah. I'm sorry, I got it. And many Haggadot, and I challenge you to compare the Haggadot, because one thing I've discovered is no two Haggadot explain Haggadah in the same way. I actually made a list once of probably around 15 different explanations of who are all the characters in Haggadah. Who's the cat? Who's the dog? 
who's the ox. And depending on what associations they each have for you, you could decide. It's Persia, it's Rome, it's Greece. You name the country. But make it. Make it your story. Make it a story of your Jewish history and the climax, therefore, of your Haggadah. Which means if this is the last piece of the Haggadah, it's saying, I have a Muna. That in the end, those who deserve to get their own will get it, and God will come and save us. Well, thank you, Morty. That was very enlightening. I love the fact that uh, you have these very different satyrs than I do. My satyr is just limited to my family these days. So, you know, we still have like, that's 10, 11, 12, sometimes 14. But uh, everyone has their own uh, satyr experience. And I hope people can take some of the ideas that you suggested here very much to heart and make this sadarim uh, special for them. Thank you for tuning in to the Eretz podcast. This was an experimental podcast. I hope you enjoyed the three episodes that we recorded. If you have ideas of podcasts for the future, we're happy to take any suggestions. You can write us at office at ehatzvi.org. That's office at y-e-h-t-z-v-i dot o-r-g. Or you can go to our website, eretzatzvi.org, or to our podcast website, eretzpod.org. Look forward to hearing from you in the future.